Natalie Bensavanga. And I'm Tony Norman. And this is In Other News, the podcast that is not afraid to go there. Where? Anywhere the story takes us. You concerned about speaking your mind? Me? Yeah, right. You? Ha! <laughs> Let's go, Nat. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three of In Other News with your co-host, Tony Norman, who's in a little box hey. right now. <laughs> I'm in timeout. <laughs> and of course, me, Natalie Bensavanga. So in case you're wondering why Tony's in a little box, um, we are in the age of COVID and Tony has the sniffles and would rather be safe than sick. So he's actually sitting probably literally about 20 feet from me. Hi, Tony. Hey, and hey, uh, so we're going to do the show this way. But you'll notice when we have our interview later today that we were sitting side by side. That interview was pre-recorded. So just full transparency. That's what we're all about, Tony. Right, right. I tell you, you know, <laughs> modern technology, you know, we can do anything. That's so, right. Yeah. So here we are. So let's just dive right in. There is so much to talk about. So to kick things off as of this recording on Thursday, February 9th, uh, Senator John Fetterman has been in the hospital. He was brought there by his staff. He stayed overnight. They're observing him because he was feeling very lightheaded. And um, the doctors so far say there's no evidence of a stroke, but they want to be very careful and monitor him. We just had Giselle on right. last week. So, you know, we know the Fettermans and, and we're wishing him really well. Right. It's just out of an abundance of caution. You know, when a, a person suffers from a stroke as massive as the one that Senator uh, Fetterman uh, suffered last year, you just think about the political implications of that when he was running for office. And so... You know, every sickness, um, if you're in that vulnerable position, uh, becomes fodder for the political opposition in a way. And so um, Fetterman is just being responsible. He's, you know, he felt different, out of sorts, and it was like, well, you know, why take a chance? I think it was probably more like, my wife will kill me if I don't <laughs> go to the emergency room because she was the reason that he was, you know, safe last time was because she nudged him to go. But you know, speaking of, you were you were talking a little bit about um, the opposition mm. and uh, people, you know, watching every move that you make. Did you happen to catch the State of the Union earlier oh, this course, week? Of course, of course. I, I mean, I, it was either that or the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and I figured this would be more civil. And boy, was I <laughs> well, wrong. I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 funny. You would think that um, the Republicans would realize that they're being baited by mm. this president when, you know, he, he brings up things that are truly a part of their agenda, but they don't want to admit it. Yeah. And then he gets them to all agree that Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid are off the chopping block. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant jujitsu, mm -hmm. you know, um, speech and um, politics. It was an amazing fate, um, feat um, by this so-called doddering president. He tricked the whole caucus into you know, saying the thing that they least want to say in public. Yeah, because even if they wouldn't stand up and applaud, they couldn't boo against right. Social Security and Medicare. My goodness. So even they had to admit that um, was a thing that everybody wants exactly. across party lines. Exactly. It's like Obamacare. You know, mm -hmm. you, you're like... You, you get all these high numbers against it. And then as soon as you realize what it is and what it does, you become acclimated to it. Same thing with Social Security. 
We've had it for the last 70, 80 years. Yeah. I mean, it's too late to throw that baby out with the bathwater. Here's hoping, Tony, but I put nothing past these people, so to speak, you know? Oh, they have a radical agenda, but yeah. there's no way it's going to be implemented in this country the way it's, const you know, um, currently constituted. It's just impossible. Well, I remember a while back, somebody had created a sign. This was maybe two or three election cycles ago, and it said, keep your government off my Medicare. <laughs> and and I, I never forgot that because it made me realize just how ill-educated the American populace is around these major social issues that impact them and all of these cuts that are happening to our education system and wanting to remove our history, our collective history from, from our, you know, our children's education. It's very concerning because yes, we laugh, but if people don't understand that that is the government at work providing their Medicare, then they really might not understand when the government says on, in certain factions, the government, oh, you know, this is now on the chopping block because those connections have never been made. So that, that intrigues me and right, concerns me. Right, right. And, and, and to a certain extent, it's really incumbent upon Democrats in particular yes. um, to not only educate their own constituents, but, you know, that public out there, the, the, the independents and the folks who, uh, in fact, are actively supporting folks who want to take away mm -hmm. um, these, um, I mean, let's, let's face it, without Medicare, Medicaid, and um, Social Security, Many people would have a much, much shorter lifespan yeah. by decades. Well, and the reality is there are so many issues that are impacting public health, and gun violence is one of them. And what I've always found that the Republicans have done really effectively is creating simple messages that get their points across yes, easily. They're and, better and, at it. Yeah, they are. And, and lately they've been, several of them in uh, the House and in the Senate have been wearing AR-15s on their lapels, which... Wow, you know, talk about being anti-life. Talk about not being pro-life in any sense when that's become a replacement for your American flag pin. I find that really concerning. And, you know, we've been experiencing an uptick here in gun violence around the nation. Biden, during the State of the Union address, called for an assault, uh, excuse me, a ban on assault rifles, which we've done before. Right. We could do again. Right. And so these things really do trickle into the ether and they trickle down into the local space as well. You know, and ever since COVID hit, we've seen downtown become deserted, desolate, you know, violent crime has increased. And of course, gun violence has increased as well. And, and recently, you know, uh, Mayor Ganey, he has been talking about some concrete proposals and ideas to try to help curb the violence that he's seeing on an uptick. And once again, this is all intertwined. It's all public health. Absolutely. Um, and it's really interesting that the mayor, uh, and basically agreeing that it's a public health menace, also suggested that, you know, he didn't get much uh, in terms of uh, a roadmap in order to deal with this from the previous administration, uh, which is pretty much a ding against those folks. Um, and he basically said that, you know, this is a long range problem you know there is no immediate um you know push a button solve the problem uh, solution to this and and we agree more cops you know um, that's what some people would say um bring in more social services resources okay that that's more up our alley yeah um but are the resources available to do that i mean that's a big question well that's a really good point and 
in my former life as a social worker, when you realize what you're dealing with on a daily basis, you know, who supports the mental health professionals? And there's not enough of us. And, you know, the pay isn't great. The hours are hard. So there needs to be supports for the supporters as well. And to your point about bringing in more cops, you know, uh, they were talking about how some people are saying we should be arresting um, our unhoused populations right. downtown. What the hell is that going to do except put trauma on trauma? There's a reason that people stay on the streets even when there's resources available to them. It's because they've experienced trauma from those service providers and from those spaces. And there's there's a big movement in mental health to try to bring um, the services to the streets and meet people where they are and work with them in different capacities. So this is going to take a multi-pronged approach. More punitive measures can't be our only way out of this. Exactly, exactly. So. So, and you know, when we're talking to about what happened um, downtown and what's happening around the country because of COVID and the and the public health crisis that still exists with COVID, I feel as though that's sort of taken a back seat and it's it's become sort of this conversation that nobody is wanting to have anymore. We're tired and we're we're exhausted from it. But we've brought in today uh, Dr. Rhonda Johnson, who is a healthcare consultant and who has become a TikTok sensation. And we're going to learn more about her and her work in our next segment, The Drill Down. A doctor on TikTok. <laughs> You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for joining us. We are so excited for today's guest, Dr. Rhonda Johnson. She is a physician. She is a healthcare consultant, an author, a YouTube star, and a TikTok sensation. How about that? Wow. <laughs> TikTok sensation too. I, I tell you, you, you had me at YouTube. TikTok, that's another realm. We're going to get you so on TikTok, congrats. Tony. <laughs> but we're thrilled to have you on today, Dr. Johnson, because one of the conversations that we feel is sort of lacking lately in media is honest and open dialogue around COVID, around long COVID, and around the end of what's going to be for the pandemic come May, according to the Biden administration. So we want you to weigh in on all of these things. But to kick us off, can you just share a little bit about your background and how you ended up on TikTok? I'm a pediatrician by training and public health professional. I've worked in public health in three different states and, and three different health departments. So when the pandemic started, there was so much misinformation on social media and we were all home. You know, many of us were home and isolated. And I just felt this great calling to step up and share what I know um, as informally as I can. Initially, I started on Facebook with just family and friends, but people kept saying, make this public, make this public. And then eventually I decided to house my information on a YouTube channel. My children actually set that up for me. And then I just <laughs> went to TikTok because the world is on TikTok after all. And I wanted to reach a younger audience than what I would be potentially reaching on Facebook and YouTube. So that's how it all got started. I just am an ordinary person who just did something when the time called for it. Well, it was um, right on time, and um, you know, as as someone who's coming to your your videos, your YouTube videos, late in the game, I can tell you, I wish I had uh, come across them earlier. And as someone who has had um, more than just sort of like a, a passing contact with the the, the medical um, 
establishment and you know between the week you know between um, Christmas and New Year's um, and and I survived folks um, but more about that in a future episode um, I, I can tell you that um, the information that you give is 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 just really apropos and important and I, and I wish more people had exposure to it um, this is something that you decided to do as you know the pandemic kicked in um, do you think you ever would have done anything like this um, prior to that? Because you seem to have a real knack for communicating uh, complex issues in a very simple way. Well, all of my pediatric practice was in underserved communities. And I learned very on that if you want people to try to achieve better health or have um, adherence to your recommendations as a physician, they needed to understand it. Healthcare information is so complicated and so complex. And it was those years and years of working with what I call medically vulnerable population that I would say gave me my skill at talking to everyday people using plain, ordinary language. And I'm very thankful that I'm able to do so. And also, I will say, Tony, first of all, I'm so honored that someone like you watches my video and Natalie, you watch me on TikTok. When you're on social media, you don't know who is your follower, who, you know, so you just give it your best. And I try to be as professional and as informed as I can. I volunteer my service and I'm really just thankful that I'm able to do um, this at this point in time. There is a great need for information because there's so much misinformation out there. Yeah, that was really something that struck me, Dr. Johnson, was I felt like there were really two viruses happening, right? So we had COVID hit, and then you had this wave of, you know, misinformation, you know, gaslighting, anti-vaxxer nonsense all over social media. Does that frustrate you as someone that has worked in the public health space? And what spaces do you think are doing a good job of combating that outside of your own social media presence? I have been surprised at the degree of misinformation. You know, we've been through crises, health crises before, the HIV health crisis. We've been through, I call epidemics of um, drugs. Right now we're going through a fentanyl crisis. We've gone through a heroin crisis. And I've never seen the misinformation that occurred during this pandemic. Now, a lot of it is political, you know, um, and, and the lockdowns didn't help. I, I think if we had to do it all over again, we probably should not have had such a uh, prolonged lockdown from March to June, um, you know, but we didn't know anything about this virus. I, I want to share that to the public. You must remember that in 2020, this virus was unknown to us. We didn't mm -hmm. even know the genetic sequence. So there was a lot of international collaboration to get the sequence of this virus. A lot of scientists shared information. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies, which are normally competitors, they collaborated to make these vaccines. You had partnership between the government and the private sector. And for a little while, we had a lot of cooperation by the public in terms of adhering to the mandates and the public health emergency. It just went on too long for the public. And then, of course, there was all of the political division. When we're talking about political division, there's two statements that stand out in my mind. One was when Donald Trump came out 
former president and said, it's just like the flu. It's mm. no big deal, which I think really set people down a road of like, I don't have to worry about this. And then the second one was when President Biden said, the pandemic's over and kind of just wiped his hands of that. When you have politicians sort of leading and dictating our public health policy, why is that so dangerous when politics takes precedent over people and care for people? Well, that's a difficult question, but um, I do think it was it was the wrong thing to do to tell people that this was no worse than the common cold because we had a million people die in the first year or so of this pandemic and the common cold does not kill that many people. So that was a very strategic mistake, but it was done to try to preserve uh, confidence, avoid mass chaos and panic. I understand why leaders make the difficult decisions that they do because they are trying to protect the function of government really, if, if they do nothing else, is to protect the public. And, you know, when people are um, experiencing chaos and confusion, that can lead to panic and a whole lot of, um, I call it downstream impact. So, you know, that was a strategic error to say that this pandemic was no worse than the flu. As far as saying, President Biden saying that the pandemic is over, well, I want to address that. Mm -hmm. The pandemic is over when the public thinks it's over. Um, from an epidemiologic and infectious disease standpoint, it's not over. But the public has moved on. Surveys by reputable institutions have demonstrated that over and over again. The public is ready to move forward they want their new normal. So governments have to react to social opinions. That's what politics, politicians do. They feel beholden to the people that they represent. Now, I've never been elected to any office, so I'm not speaking from any personal experience. But in a sense, President Biden just said, you know, the public, the pandemic is over. It's time to move on. Now that he did say, that COVID is not over, that COVID is still a problem and COVID remains a problem. And that's where people are going to get into trouble. If they believe that the pandemic is over, if they quit doing the things to protect themselves, such as getting their necessary vaccines and boosters, wearing a mask when they're in large crowds and indoors and poorly ventilated places, the virus is pretty much here. And it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And we don't have vaccines that are able to eradicate it. People forget it took hundreds of centuries to eradicate smallpox. Smallpox mm -hmm. was only eradicated in the seven, you know, recently, put it like that recently. So um, it takes, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while for us to eradicate COVID and it may never be eradicated and I'm not going to suggest that it's going to become less virulent over time. Nobody really knows what this virus is going to do in the future. I want to just shift gears a little bit and talk about what's been giving me anxiety. I may lay on this couch for this part of the conversation, <laughs> Dr. Johnson. Um, but what's been really giving me anxiety is the idea around what's happening with long COVID and how many people are experiencing symptoms. I have a lot of friends. I'm in my 30s. I have friends that are super, were super healthy that are now dealing with 
chronic heart problems, with fatigue, with uh, neurological issues that never had any underlying issues prior. This is the stuff that makes me have a lot of anxiety is how do we deal with long COVID if we don't, one, really understand it, and two, not everyone is taking precautions of wearing masks in crowded spaces or trying to ventilate, um, you know, places or, or all of the things, you know, you see restaurants crowded to capacity. And while I understand that in your mind, you know, the public is moving on, a lot of us haven't um, moved on because we're recognizing the dangers. So can you talk a little bit about the impact of long COVID in real terms? Because I don't feel like there is a lot of information out there that is from reputable sources around that space. So long COVID is a constellation of symptoms that occur in people who have had COVID. It can occur in people who have had mild COVID disease, people who've had asymptomatic COVID infection, as well as people who have been in the hospital and in the ICU. Long COVID encompasses over 200 different symptoms that can range anywhere from brain fog, fatigue, forgetfulness, to uh, advanced heart disease, advanced lung disease, advanced kidney disease, profound weakness. There's an entire constellation of symptoms that go into long COVID. The frustration, of course, is in treatment because there um, is, you, you end up, unfortunately, if you have long COVID, let's say you have a heart condition, then you will get care from a cardiologist or a heart specialist. If you have pulmonary long COVID, you're going to end up getting care from a pulmonologist. If you have end-stage kidney disease, you're going to end up, you know, with either dialysis or getting care from a kidney specialist. And the problem with that is that you can end up touching multiple systems of our already complicated, fragmented healthcare system. And we need some um, consolidated national strategy to deal with long COVID. Many people are getting discriminated against, they're losing their jobs, they're not eligible for disability insurance. This is a major problem that we're going to have to deal with with long COVID because one out of 10 people here in the United States are believed to have long COVID. Now, I will fully disclose that I too had COVID infection and I experienced symptoms of long COVID. I Ooh. had the fatigue, I had the shortness of Ooh. breath, I had the cough, Ooh. I had the racing heart rate. Um, and again, fortunately for me, most of those symptoms have diminished over time. And I do want to offer that as a source of hope for people who are dealing with long COVID. It is possible that with the right treatment and the right therapy, that your symptoms can improve over time. So don't give up hope. That's encouraging. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. You gave us so much to think about. Mm -hmm. And we so appreciate you um, chatting with us. There's so much more that we had planned that we wanted to talk with you about on many different subjects. So we would love to have you back on again. But before we end, can you please share with people if they want to connect with you or if they want to check out your show on YouTube, TikTok, or your book? Can you let them know how to connect? Yes. I published a book that deals with my experiences as a social media educator and I really wanted to capture the voices of the people who interact with me on social media. It is called My Journey, How One Medical Doctor Helped People During Difficult Times During the Pandemic. It's available on Amazon uh, through Kindle, hardback, 
and paperback. I also have a YouTube channel. It's called Survive COVID-19, Dr. Rhonda Johnson. And for those who want to interact with me on TikTok, I, um, my TikTok handle, I guess that's what it's called, is <laughs> Dr. Rhonda MJ. Well, thank you again. And yeah, we look forward to more conversations in the future. And I guess the takeaway here is mask Anytime. up. Anytime. Get mask your boosters mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, wash your hands. <laughs> and, and watch more TikTok. And watch more TikTok. You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Nat, here's a fun fascist fact. Oh, my favorite. All right. <laughs> this is unbelievable. I, I read this today in the New Republic. Um, do you believe that the Democrats lost control of the House of Representatives by less than 7,000 votes spread over five congressional districts? If they had wow. won those districts, they would be in control of both the House and the Senate and would have defied history even more. It's amazing. 7,000 votes is just nothing. It's nothing. I mean, that is, that's a really tiny amount when you think of that being spread around the country. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. That really freaks me out, actually, Tony. <laughs> well, it, it's, it also shows that the Democrats have a lot of work to do. Yes. We really do have to, and I, and I say we because I am a Democrat. I will admit that. You, you are? Know? Yes, yes, I'm a partisan. <laughs> um, Democrats just have a lot of work to do if we want to retain this democracy. But, you know, right now, um, I think we're in better shape than we thought we were, yeah. let's say, a year ago. So, Well, and I do think there are some things to celebrate. For example, we want to make sure that we recognize that earlier this week, the Democrats swept the three seats locally yes. that were up for grabs here in the House um, in Allegheny County. So that means they officially, for the first time in over a decade, a decade, mm-hmm. have control of the state house. Now, what that all means, it's a tiny majority lead, right. but it's still a win. So I think while it's important that we acknowledge where we have opportunities for growth, mm-hmm. as I like to say, and I learned that from my friend Sarah, I think that's a nice way of saying things, um, we can also recognize these victories too, because that was a big thing to have happen earlier this week as well. And no one was talking about it. I think we were the only people I heard even talking about this special election. Yeah, which is uh, last week. Strange because there's Mm -hmm. so much on the line uh, in terms of you know um, leadership in the House and you know who would control it because that obviously affects the governor's agenda too. Um, Absolutely. So it really is a a big deal. Yeah, and speaking of agendas, I know um, Kevin McCarthy actually did make good on his promise, Ooh, right, yes. of reading the Constitution uh-huh. on the floor. I, I believe it took him 43 minutes. I, I have to pull out my own pocket Constitution right now, everyone. <laughs> I don't see how this could have taken him 43 minutes and, and how he read it that slowly, but whatever. Maybe there were other things at work there. But the reason I have this little pocket Constitution... He was Constitution, getting heckled as he was reading it. Into- <laughs> there you go. Maybe that was it. But I have this little pocket Constitution because I went and saw what the Constitution means to me over the weekend at the City Theater um, down in the South Side. And they had an incredible performance. Um, it was only... There were only three people in the whole production. Mm. And one of them was a young woman from North Allegheny High School. And she's on the debate team. So... After the production, they actually talked about, should we abolish or keep the Constitution? It was a really interesting conversation and an interesting debate. And then after that, there was a talk back with uh, Sidney Etheridge, the new 
um, CEO of Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania. Mm. And it was just one of those things where, you know, I've, I, I think I might have read it in high school, the Constitution, mm-hmm. but I've actually been reading it myself a lot lately and just recognizing uh, what an important document this is and what this document has represented to so many over so many years. And um, the reality is how fragile this is and how important it is to defend the actual constitution. Because when you start to peel back the layers and you start to understand who was at the table when this was first implemented, and since then, all these amendments of who's Mm -hmm. gotten to be a part of that conversation since, when I start to get stressed out about we're, we're moving backwards, I still have to remember how far we've come to. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, so that's yes. kind of where I'm at. All right. <laughs> You're reading the Constitution. I'm reading the Constitution. All right. <laughs> so if you get a chance to check it out, it is the, the play is still going through February 12th. And we have lots of other action items and things that we're going to share Um you know, that that you can do to contribute to the community, whether it's, you know, uh, working on preventing gun violence or protecting yourself from COVID and your loved ones, or of course, enjoying a little theater, because I think art is what always saves us in the end. Art and the Constitution. Yeah. All right. I like it. Well, until next time, everybody, thanks so much for joining us. All right. This has been fun, as usual. Yeah, I miss you sitting right here, but hopefully next week you'll be sniffle free. Yes, I know. (laughs) Or I'll be banished again. (laughs) Or he'll be banished again. Take care of yourselves and each other, everybody. Bye. In Other News is a presentation of Next Pittsburgh and is proudly produced by us, along with our amazing team, Emma Honcharski and Margie Ruttenberg. Our editor is Sorgatron Media and original music by Jack Swing. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and share this episode and rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps us grow. And if you're listening on the Next Pittsburgh website, take a minute to take a look around to learn more about all the cool stuff happening in our hometown.